0: Welcome to the Ruby Ray podcast. At some point in our lives, we've all closed our hearts and turned away from love because we didn't feel worthy of receiving it. Now we're remembering how deserving we are to receive and embrace a daily reality of divine love. These conversations are for those with the fire beaming within who are learning how to trust in and receive the flow of love in our life once again the ruby ray is the way of the heart honoring the deep feminine mysteries ancient ways and stories as we open our hearts to heal radiate and liberate the rising feminine in us all i am your host jacqueline norton sharing this episode with you today and to be welcoming amantha murphy this episode is packed with ancestral wisdom and irish healing and feminine traditions amantha murphy is a siobhan which is a traditional Irish healing path of the medicine woman and seer and healer. And this is a lineage that is passed down between woman to woman. And so in her case, it was passed down from her grandmother to her. It is a shamanic path. It is a traditional path and it is a healing path. So today we talk about our foremothers, and what their purpose and their role is in our life as women of today now, and how to rekindle and revive and reconnect um, with them and bring that relationship closer and to fortify it. And we also discuss her path as a Siobhan and what that means, the meaning of the name Siobhan and the foundational pillars of her healing practice, what that looks like using the modality of the spiral and the three worlds being the lower world, the middle world, and the upper world or spiritual world. And she gives us practices and kind of a framework to work within using these three worlds. And we discuss the Celtic Wheel of the Year, the importance and the lessons in where we are currently stationed in the Wheel of the Year, and so much more. And I just want to point out that At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned The Way of the Siobhan is the name of her book. And I mentioned that The Way of the Siobhan is the traditional Irish woman's healing and shamanic path. And I just want to clarify that and change that to it is a traditional Irish healing path. It is not the definitive Path, it is just a specific one and this specific one is to amantha and the one that she walks in that was passed down to her through her own lineage and through her grandmother so i just want to clarify that before we move forward amantha murphy can be found at celticsouljourneys.com you can check out her upcoming apprenticeships and teachings for january and into the new year if you want to get in touch with her that way. And to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at Jacqueline Norton, J-A-C-L-Y-N or at MotherEarthHerself.com. So I hope you love this episode. It was really a special moment to sit down with Amantha when I was in Ireland and have this conversation with her and just to be able to Hold a space to keep these stories alive and to keep these healing traditions and feminine traditions uh, that our foremothers used and that we are returning to and that we are remembering now to have a space where they can live and breathe again. So thank you so much for being here and here is Amantha. Today I'm speaking with Amantha Murphy. She is a storyteller, a teacher, seer, healer, and really walker and teacher of the traditional Irish way. And so today we are talking about the traditional Irish women seers and healers and shamans and the practices they lived by and the way they walked and really this rekindling and remerging of the traditional Irish way of living and healing and the spiritual practices of our foremothers and our ancestors and for all of those with this lineage. So, Amanda, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Jacqueline. The
0: Way of the Siobhan is your book, and it's what you teach, and it's a path passed down from women to women. And in your case, it was your grandmother to you. And so what was that initiation like for you? And what were some of your first memories of learning about this way?
1: Okay, yes. Um let's take the second half first, because I think that'd be easier for me. So learning about this way really for me it was it was a way of being. I grew up spending all my summers here where I live now, in Kerry, outside of Kalani, on the land that was my mother's land, my grandmother's land, her mother's land. And so the introduction into this type of work was something that was natural and It was a part of my life rather than something that I saw separate from my life. And I would come back here every summer to my grandmother and we would lie on the land. She would talk. We would go and leave gifts for the fairies. We would talk to the stone people. I would sit around the fire at night with my granny and her cronies and they would be telling the stories. And it was really part of the fabric of my life. And in many ways, it was the only time that I felt alive. I went to school. I grew up in an area called Kilburn in London, uh, which, you know, <laughs> they used to call County Kilburn because it was where all the Irish went in the late 40s and early 50s. And so everybody around us was Irish. But there was a desperate longing through many of the people for wanting to be home, needing to go to England to find work, find jobs to make money, leaving the land, to find something more, something better, not just for themselves, but more importantly for their children, which is what really prompted both my parents to go to England. And so every year it would be spent with us all saving up to come back to Ireland in the summer again. And in those days they didn't know about dyslexia. So school for me was very hard. I can't spell to this day. And my writing is, is pretty atrocious even now. But mathematics was my subject. So I got my first prize for maths at the age of five, good mental work. And I was always top of the class in mathematics, but couldn't spell to save my life. And of course, that affected most subjects. So it was very difficult at school. And for me also, I couldn't understand how people were, for me, asleep. It just felt like everybody was asleep and they weren't aware of what they were saying or what they were doing. And in many ways, that felt unsafe. And especially children, <laughs> they felt unsafe because they could say terrible things to each other. They could do terrible things. And I found that all very strange to observe, to witness. And so I very much kept myself to myself in many ways because of that. And it wasn't until the age of 12 when I had an operation for my on my eyes, I was born with double vision and that wasn't diagnosed till i was 5 and at the age of 12 they did an operation for the double vision and for the first time in my life i stopped seeing spirit i had been talking to spirit all my life i'd been talking to the elementals and the stone people etc here in ireland every year and to suddenly be of this world in a way you know to suddenly be a part of um was very strange and at the same time i made friends I had a best friend, Kathleen O'Shea, at school and um, and I was very lucky in that I went to a school where I loved our nuns. Um, of course, it was a Catholic school and 99% of the children that were there were the same as myself. They were children of Irish parents. There was a few from Italian and a couple of Polish, but mainly they were Irish. And so again, that was a, an extended safe space in a way and our nuns were very good women. I worked with them at weekends when I got a little older in the orphanages, and they had a deaf and dumb home and and a place for tramps. And I love them. I love my nuns. And the only thing I didn't like was the praying part. (laughs) I didn't have any connection to the church or to Jesus. I was brought up under the auspices of Mary, the mother, and the great mother. And so for me, the nuns were lovely, kind, and they taught me spirituality. And to this day, I give thanks for that. To this day, I give blessings for having learnt that lesson so that as I step forward in my work, that was always in my backbone. That was always what moved me forward that awareness and the kindness um, that I received at home and the kindness I received from the nuns. And that's become a part of my life, a part of who I am. And I see it in my children and my grandchildren, and especially my adult grandchildren. So it's a lovely thing to recognize, do you know? So the first part of your question was, and I've forgotten it now, <laughs> so you'll have to remind me, what was the first part again? Well, I was
0: asking about your first memories of your grandmother initiating you, teaching you about this way.
1: Okay. So I suppose my first memories going back was the times that we would go and sit and talk to the fairies, taking our gifts, uh, which would normally be bread and butter and sugar sandwiches because she said that they liked the sweetness. It was listening to the stories around the fire. It was her sense of connection with the land, And how for her, it wasn't separate from who she was and how she lived. Do you know when she would make the bread and the bread would be made in the cauldron over the fire? We didn't get a cooker here until I was nearly 18, so we cooked over the fire. And so you knew when the bread was going to be made that morning because my granny would be up scrubbing the table, the wooden table, and that meant bread was going to be made. And there was no bowls. You know, the flour would be put on the table and the sour milk would be put on top of it. And the first break of the bread would be given to the fairy folk, the first break bread would be put outside. And even when she was making it, the first part of the sour milk would be put out for them, because there was that relationship, that awareness that we shared this space together. And if you gave them gifts, then things would go well for you, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's really the beginning for me. And the, the understanding that she had, you know, when you were with her, I mean, she was only four foot two. So she was a tiny woman. But the understanding that she had, the The recognition of her being able to hold space for others was huge. Mm -hmm. People would come to her, they would come to her to talk to her if they were in grief, if they were melancholy, and somehow she could hold them. And I think just being with her, being around her, was a great learning for me. And I remember even as a child at seven or eight, thinking and wishing to myself that all I ever wanted in my life was to be like my grandmother. Because this depth of understanding that she carried and the the love that she had for everybody and everything, the earth, all that lives upon the earth, you know. Was she a
0: healer of her village or were a lot of the women able to during these times, able to hold that space and play these roles? Or do you think that she had different inclinations or gifts towards healing and being a medicine woman? Or would you even describe her as a medicine woman?
1: Um, there wasn't a lot of people like her. <laughs> she was unique in many ways as to who she was. She would see people in. She was a midwife. Um, and it said that she helped uh, deliver over 63 children, and she never lost one. And she would see them out, and she would know when people passed. She would often wake up in the middle of the night and have a conversation with them. And she would get up in the morning and say, You know, so and so has died, or, you know, and I remember once being in England, and my mother and my aunt were here uh, with my grandmother, and I was 16, and my mother's brother had died, Jimmy in North London and I got the call and I had to send a telegram back because of course in those days there was no telephones, especially not no mobiles. And uh, the postman got up here about nine o'clock in the morning with his bicycle and my mother and my auntie Eileen were standing at the doorway with their suitcases waiting for my uncle Mickey to come and collect them and take them to the station because granny had woken them up at four o'clock and told them that Jimmy had passed. He'd come to say goodbye and that they had to get ready and come back to prepare for the funeral. So that sort of thing was quite natural to her. And I remember, you know, talking to her when I was about 18, 19, and I started working more consciously with spirit and asking her had she ever seen spirit. And she's sitting there by the fire, and she just looks at me, and she says, she said, often they'll come back and talk to you, she said, but you know, you mustn't grieve for more than a year and a day. She said, after a year and a day, you need to let them go. She says, otherwise you hold them back. But you need to grieve. You need to allow yourself to grieve for that year and a day. And I'm sitting on the other side of the fire, looking at her and thinking, this woman has never left this area in her life. And yet she holds more wisdom than anyone I'd ever met.
0: Where do you think that wisdom comes from?
1: I feel that it comes through understanding, through being aware of, listening to the inner voice, and also I think it's in your blood too. I think we carry it in our DNA. You know, we carry all the patterns of our ancestors, especially as women, our foremothers, because we carry that mitochondrial line directly back. And just as we carry the build and the colouring, of our ancestors, we also carry those patterns, those memories in our bones, in our joints. It pumps through our blood. And we can reclaim that. We can remember, we can reweave those memories back again. And we can draw from it, we can draw through it. And I truly believe that not just my grandmothers, but all grandmothers, I use the term loosely as in foremothers, are there to assist us to do that, to remember who we are as women to remember all that we carry and to be able to live through that, to be able to recognize the gifts that we carry and to be able to bring that through our lives, to stand in the essence of all that we are.
0: Yeah, and I can't help but imagine that, the foremothers and the grandmothers and the keepers of the stories have a really big role right now in the present moment and in the women of today who are remembering and who are having the ancestral memories coming back online, healing the patterns, but also like you said, reclaiming the patterns and reclaiming the wisdom and the depth and Especially with a lineage where there's so much lore, there's so much myth, the story is at the heart of this way of living. And so what do you think the grandmothers and the foremothers are? What is their role in today? And what are they returning for now?
1: I think I feel that our ancestors are less than a breath away. They're less than a breath away. And we have lost that connection through the amount of technology that we have around us. And I do feel personally that we are being pressured not to connect with that inner energy, that inner sense, that inner way of being, because then we are always living under stress. We're living within stress. Do more, get more done in a day, have more, buy more. It's all pushing us, pulsating us to live in a world of stress, in a place, a space of survival. Because then we will be more dependent on those who give us information, those who give us our way of being, be it politicians or be it religious figures. And despite that, we are finding that sense of being within ourselves. Despite that, we are returning to the recognition that everything we need actually lies within ourselves. It's our connection with self that should and often can and really does sustain us in the long run and bring us forward into where we need to be. Our path is a spiral path. And so we will meet things along the way. We will meet things that we have met before in a different way, clothed in a different way. And it depends on how we react or respond to that as to how we move forward in life. And if we can draw upon the information, the memories, the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding of our foremothers, then we have a lot more that we can draw upon to make our decisions, to have more clarity in who we are, where we are, and what we are choosing to attract to us, what we are choosing to step into. Whose reality are we living in? Whose reality are we feeding? So I truly believe that the more we connect with those foremothers that are around us, I believe they're always there. It's part of us. It's part of our breath. It's part of our life force. It's part of our pumping blood that runs through our body. And the more we recognize that we have that within us, the more we are able to make conscious decisions and literally have more time and space because our breathing will change. Our breathing will become slightly slower. Our breathing will become slightly deeper. And as we do that, and as we continue to do that, we create more space within the time framework that we are being held within And when we have that space, that extra space, we have more opportunity to take, to make the decisions that are supportive of us rather than react to the situations or the people around us. I love that. I love that notion of their presence and
0: their energy slowing us down and being this guiding force that's able to reorient us towards what matters, not through the busyness and not through the striving, but through the breath, through the filling ourselves up more with something different, but something that's always been there. And considering that these threads have been severed and they have been disconnected and so much has been lost what is the way of reconnecting with the presence of the four mothers again? And is our intention alone enough?
1: Yeah. I don't believe it's been severed. I don't believe it's been severed. I believe it's been lost and forgotten. Yeah, I do. I truly believe that. I don't believe it's been severed for anybody. It's just been forgotten and it's been hidden. You have to remember that as women, we went through the greatest, one of the greatest Holocaust the world has ever known, the witch hunts. Yeah, And so a lot of women had to close down. A lot of women had to close in. A lot of voices were silenced. And the fear of that went up all the way and through the 19th century. And that's a long time. That's a long time. And so now we are reclaiming all of that again. And that I truly believe that for a proportion of women, there's a great fear in giving voice. There's a great fear in actually accessing their power again. Because we've been taught as women, power is evil. And absolute power is absolutely evil. So give it away. Give it away to the priest, the father, the politician. But power isn't evil. It's what people do with it. Power can be the power of love. It can be the power of kindness, the power of sensitivity the power of vulnerability. Vulnerability should not be seen as a weakness because vulnerability connects us to humanity. And so as women, I really and truly believe that we are needing to reclaim that and to know that, yes, we went through that time. And yes, there are women sisters across the planet today who are still going through that. And when we speak, when we speak our truth, I truly believe that each time Each one of us speaks our truth. We are speaking it for all women. And we are giving all women that opportunity. And we are letting our sisters know who cannot speak, that we can speak and we should speak for them. I'm a grandmother. You know, I have three daughters and I have two adult granddaughters. And I have grown through seeing so much and walking and standing against things that are not acceptable. And I still see that happening now, and it's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. It's like no more. I do not accept this. I do not want the generations after me to have to go through this any longer. I do not want the women to be afraid of walking in the darkness at night, of wearing a short skirt or having their hair tied in a certain way or whatever it is. It's unacceptable. And I think there's a lot of women who are like me and women my age, who will stand out and say that and stand up and say that. As we get older, we're not going to become quieter. We're not going to sit by the fire knitting any longer. We're going to stand or noise because we are doing it for those yet to come. We are letting them know that we haven't forgotten and that we want a different way for them.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, the distortion around the crone energy or this idea of the meek grandmother that has this lens that we've viewed things through because our foremothers were incredibly strong women. And although some things happened throughout history that really did silence the voices of women, like what you were saying, the witch hunts being the root of it, of this grand silencing of the feminine voice that happened for generations upon generations through our grandmothers and great grandmothers that were still feeling in our hearts and we're still feeling that trauma that came from all of the lifetimes that women lived unexpressed, unexpressed in their voice and in their fullness. And yet there is such a distortion around the older women not using her voice or being this silent or quiet, passive sort of thing because our foremothers were incredibly strong, powerful women and they weren't afraid of their power. They weren't afraid to stand in their power. They weren't afraid to use their power and they weren't afraid of their gifts in the remembering, we're also returning to who they really were and reclaiming that for ourselves.
1: Yes, yes. And I don't see it as returning, as in going back, but I see it as moving forward, taking it with us, reclaiming it as in drawing it with us and from within us. You know, it's like that spiral again. We are moving into that time and space again when we are remembering We are reweaving those aspects of ourselves together and we're carrying that forward into today's world. How do we work with it now? Look at the women that are standing up as politicians. Look at the women that are standing up as scientists. Look at the women that are standing up in spiritual networks, women that are standing up in business and actually changing the face of business too. Women are doing that now. Women are stepping forward. They're claiming their power. They're claiming their voices and That's something that I see as only growing, only growing. The world needs the women. The earth needs her daughters to stand for her and with her now. It really does. I have something on YouTube called The Earth Dreams, and it's something that the earth gifted me in the mid-90s, and I have shared it with every group I've ever worked with ever since then. And for many years, I dreamed it every night before I went to sleep. And it is dreaming the earth. It's dreaming the earth as a place of peace, dreaming the earth with clean seas and clear skies, dreaming the green grass and the high trees growing wide and high all around her body. It is a dream that the earth dreams. And we need to dream that with her. We need to dream that for her because she dreams of us too. And we are here as custodians. We are here to midwife or that is happening. And there are changes afoot. You can't say there isn't. But how those changes happen, how they blossom, how they move and evolve is up to us. That part is up to us. And we can do that now. We can dream the earth. And then we can bring that dream into action. For example, planting a tree. You can plant it in honor of your ancestors. You can plant it in honor of your first or second or third grandchild or child. You can put the placenta in with the roots and see how rich it grows. Buying food that is more organic in nature, that is more local if possible, not buying a plastic bag, simple things that are part of the change, part of our consciousness of how we are choosing to take care of our Mm. earth. For she is our great mother. She feeds us and she waters us and she gives us all this beauty around us, you know. I remember in my 30s, I was in a very deep meditation and I was taken to this room and I opened the door of the room and it was black. But as I stepped in, I could see some reflection in the far corner and I walked towards the reflection and I stood there and all of a sudden there was a light behind my right shoulder and I was looking at myself in a mirror and i was standing there naked and i heard the words in this life we have given you light and we have given you reflection the rest to you hmm. that really shifted something in me at that time you know the recognition of that the realization you can't blame this other entity for anything that has happened we are that We are that within ourselves, and it's our responsibility to do something about it, from the smallest to the biggest. If we stay silent, we are agreeing. Whether we like it or not, we're agreeing. And so we need to raise our voice. We need to add our voice. We need to come together. There's nothing more stronger than when women come together. (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I believe truly that it's part of us. It's part of who we are as women. We know how to work together. We know how to be in community. We know how to share together. So I truly believe that coming together is the first step. And everything else flows from there. Yes, everything flows from there because we are strengthened when we are held and when we can hold. When we recognize that every woman carries her story and her story is sacred, And if she shares that with you, that's such a great honor. That's a sacred honor that she has shared with you. And you have to hold that in that sacredness. And you move from being women together to being sisters. Yeah. And together you become the chalice. You are the chalice together. And each of you can be held within that chalice. And each of you holds the chalice. And you are strengthened and your memories will grow and your memories will flow through you much more easily when you are with other women who are supporting you in that way.
0: Yes, yes, yes. There is a transformative power of being witnessed in our stories and in our truth. And it's this gift that we as women get to give each other to deeply, like you said, hold and see and recognize another woman's truth and just holding it as sacred and that's all. That in itself, those moments are so, they can be those real turning point moments in our lives.
1: Yes, absolutely. And without judgment, without judgment and without comment and to really see, to really hold, to really be with that woman. There's nothing more powerful. hmm So I want to talk about the
0: way of the shivan. And first of all, can you tell me about the meaning of the word Siobhan and what this stems from?
1: Yes. The word, if you break it down, is "sha" is yes, or it is in Irish, and Vaughn van is the female, the woman. So it's the yes woman. Now, I was given this name in the late 90s, I was staying with a very dear friend, Grania, Grania O'Maraku in Dublin, North Dublin at the time. And I was working from her house and Grania had asked me, what is it you actually call your work, Amantha? And, you know, I said to Grania, you know, Grania, I haven't a clue really of what the name is. I've, I've gone into other names, but nothing sits with me. And she looked at me and She was a native Irish speaker and her husband, before he had died, he and she used to run a school for Irish. In the summer months, they were both teachers and they used to run a summer school for young people who were falling back in Irish in school because Irish is a subject here that's compulsory unless you've got a specific learning difficulty or you come to Ireland after the age of nine. And so she said to me, but Amantha, you're a chévanne. And as soon as she said it, I just felt the shift inside me. I thought, that's it. That's the word. That's, that's what it is. And I said, yes, yes, that's it. That's it. I said, but I'd never heard of it before. And she said, oh, she said, it's a, it's, it comes from uh, Danny Gaul. It's an old name for, from Danny Gore. So I never questioned it. I accepted it. And I knew that it was mine. I could feel the vibration of it. And that was great. And then, when uh, the book was published, The Way of the Chevan, Orla, who bless her, was my scribe, and I have to give a hundred thousand blessings to Orla for <laughs> for all the work and the patience that she had in writing it up for me and with me. There was some question around the name Chevan, and so Orla, who is an academic by background, she went to Trinity in Dublin. She went and researched it and she found a professor who used to be the head of Irish studies in Limerick University. And she asked him about the name and he said, yes, he said, this is an Irish word. And he said, it actually means a woman who uses her spit in healing. She's a healer. And I just thought that was so interesting because when I do healing, I often do use my spit. So I just thought that was so interesting.
0: Wow. Yeah. I love that. What is this this way? How would you Define it.
1: Yes. So for me, it's working between the realms. I um, Many years ago, I was sitting with the tree folk and I was had my back against the tree and I was sitting there with it. And all of a sudden, the tree took me down through its roots. And I felt it was a he at the time. He showed me all these roots and how these roots got wider and longer and bigger as they went down. And then he showed me my roots and how I had come from two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents going on. And how my roots were going down through the earth too. And just as the tree was drawing nourishment from its roots, so too I was drawing from my roots. And so I began to realize, gosh, I have this other world down beneath me I never knew about. This underworld, this lower world, and this lower world for me is my ancestors. Here are my ancestors. They hold me, they support me, they root me down through the earth. And I can draw upon them, I can draw upon all that they worked through, all that they achieved in their lives, all that they needed to get through famines and droughts and war and pain and sorrow and grief and everything. And so I also realized in that that as I continued to do my journeying down into the lower world, that I also carried the patterns of my ancestors. I carry them in my DNA just as much as I carry my colouring and my build and that some of these patterns are very strong patterns. They're good patterns. But as I went down more and more, I began to see that some of those roots were stuck together, and some had ivy pulling on them. And these were roots that were no longer serving me. These were roots that were actually taking energy from me rather than feeding me. And so I asked my lower world teacher, What are these roots that are pulling from me? And she said, well, these are the patterns that you have chosen to take on or in honor of your ancestors to work through. And so over time, I began to realize that as a soul, when I was coming into this life, I made a contract with two souls, two souls who agreed to give me birth. And part of that contract, because there has to always be an exchange, is that I was going to take on certain patterns, that needed to be released in my bloodline. And that in releasing those patterns, I'm releasing them for all of those of my bloodline. Those that were, those that are, and those that will be. That it will be completed. And so I began to work with that. I began to understand it, I began to see it. And the tree really helped me because I would often go to the tree folk and ask for assistance and lean and dream with them. And they showed me the middle world was just like the trunk of the tree. And this is where we live now. This is the reality we live within. And how do we participate in this reality? Or do we actually often stand by and watch it go past? How do we eat and drink of life? How do we eat and drink of life? How do we know we're alive? How do we wake up in the morning and actually breathe in life and live that And all the things that are connected to the middle realm. So I began to do that within myself. I began to feel it. I began to work with it. I began to see it. I began to understand it. And then the branches of the tree was the place of spirit. This is the place of our spirit helpers, our guides, and beyond that, the angelics. And that, unless we have these roots that hold us deep down within the earth and we know what we carry in honor of our ancestors, even if yet we haven't worked through it, but at least we own it, which means we live in truth of ourselves, that gives us power. Because nobody can make you believe something you are not if you know what you are. That is your power. And then your place of being, how you stand on this earth and how you participate within this realm, And then opening up to spirit, opening up to the place of the intuition and allowing that energy to flow down through you. It flows down through a clear filter. It flows down through the middle realm that you're working with. It flows down into the lower world. So you become a standing wave in many ways. The energy just spirals down and it spirals up. So I began to see this more and more as I grew on and worked more and more. And I began to use this and I began to work with this with others too. And in alignment with that was what I call the woman's way. This is doing it the woman's way. So we bring in rituals and we bring in rites of passage. And as I said earlier about holding the story, the sacredness of that, recognizing that as women, we need that we need to find our sisters again. We need to know that we can be held and that we can also hold. So in alignment with working with those three realms, we also work very much with rituals and rites of passage. And that is the way of the shaman. Wow.
0: Oh, my gosh. I love the picture that you just painted in my mind of I can just visualize it and see it so much. It makes so much more sense that way. Could you give us some examples about going starting at the roots in the ancestors and the underworld? And as we know, our ancestors spent a lot of time in the underworld or other world. Would you describe the underworld the same as the other world? Or is that different?
1: To me, that's different. Yes. Um, So it's the lower world. And the lower world is the place of the ancestors, the hall of the ancestors, some might call it. And so when we journey down, I always, first of all, call upon an ancestral totem. Our families have shields. Anybody that came from any part of Europe, the tribes all had shields. So the, I'm a Nemaraku I'm born a Murphy so the Murphy shield has a lion on it. So your shield might have a doe, you know a female deer or it might have a salmon, it might have a hawk, it might have a panther, it could have any of these animal realm. So you would have your mother's, you would have your father's, you would have your mother's mother's, you'd have your mother's your father's mother. and I'll often say look back three generations because you'll be surprised at what comes up. And quite often, people will journey to the lower world and meet their ancestral totem. And then they tend to research it afterwards, which I think is quite fun, because then they'll often find it on the shields, you know, and that is your ancestral totem. That is the totem that connects with you more than the others. So for example, I have the lion in my lower world. Now, I might be built more like my mother's people. My coloring would definitely be more my father's people. And I would say that my personality would be more on my father's side than my mother's side, although my granny was my mother's mother and I was so close to her. But Lion came to me at a time of need and Lion came and Lion really assisted me. And from then onwards, I had a good relationship with Lion and I know Lion. And it's funny because my children, my four children, the first two have their Venus in Leo. And the second two have their moon in Leo. And I think, well, there you go. You know, there's this Leo link and myself knows Leo. So there's this Leo link in the family, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's quite interesting. Same with me. My mom's a Leo and I'm a Leo moon. There you go. So yeah. So I would always call upon my ancestral totem first and get to know my ancestral totem. And the big thing about journeying to the lower world is the quest the quest you carry. What is the quest you're carrying? And a quest is a question. And the simplicity and the clarity of the question will determine the clarity of the answer. So if you go with a question that's got like three parts to it, (laughs) that can become complicated. You need to be clear. It needs to be simple. And it needs to be absolutely clear. So once you get to know your ancestral totem, you then ask your totem to take you to your ancestral teacher. And this teacher becomes the one who will always stand with you and for you on every other journey you do into the lower world. So anybody else, any other ancestor that wants to talk to you will come through. They have to come to that ancestral uh, teacher so that you know the truth of it. And you always ask the question, are you my ancestral teacher? And If they say no, then you say, well, I'm very, very grateful that you've come to, to work with me. Thank you so much. And I am calling upon my ancestral teacher. And then normally I'd say to the students, the first question normally I would suggest is, what are the patterns I carry in honor of you that no longer serve me? And how may I release them? Because no matter how difficult they are, we are carrying them in honor of our ancestors. Our ancestors are still with us. You know, when the ancestors died, they were buried in the earth. Most still are, whether they're in a box or whether they are cremated. And that breaks down and that goes into the ecosystem of the earth. It goes out into the streams. It goes into the grasses and the vegetables that grow. We eat those vegetables. We drink from the waters. Those that eat meat... They eat meat from the animals that ate from the ground, ate from the earth and drank from the waters. So we're ingesting our ancestors. They are in us on every level. And so when we do that, we're invoking that within ourselves. We're bringing that forward so that we can work with it. And there's some very common patterns that can come up through the ancestry. And it's quite interesting to look back and see those patterns in the family. So when you work with those patterns and the ancestor will help you in seeing it, in recognizing it, and then how do you release it? Sometimes we need to release it through the body, through sound, through vibration, through movement. Sometimes we need to do a ceremony or a ritual around it. Sometimes we need to just be aware of changing a pattern that we've become used to living with that actually doesn't serve us at all. And so whichever way we work with that, As we release it, that is being released for all of those of our bloodline. So they no longer have to carry that pattern. It's now much easier for them to move on because of it. So that's very much the lower world and the roots. So our roots become clearer. Our roots become cleaner. We become more aware of what we carry. We become more aware of being able to draw upon it, to be able to call upon it at times of need. And we can also become more aware of patterns we've
0: been gifted with that are still serving us as well and refine them.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because we all have roots and you can see with anything that grows, plants, for example, a rose bush. Every year people are trying to bring out new colors in roses. And how do they do that? They do that by putting colorant into the roots. So the colorant they put into the roots comes up into the flower itself into the bud and then opens and the flower opens. And there's different colors because of the colorants they've put in the roots. So we are colored by our roots, whether we realize it or not. And I think it's important to recognize that, to be able to see it in nature. We can relate it then to ourselves. mm mm-hmm. It becomes a lot easier to understand when we can
0: look at nature or something outside of ourself as a mirror for what's happening inside of ourself. And it helps us untangle or see see more clearly, which so much of this is all about. All right. So then when we go up to the middle world, I love what you said about how do we eat and drink of life? And oh, that just like those words just like quench my soul because it's like, how do we eat and drink of life? Yes. Like this is the question I feel so many of us yearning in the collective, to eat and drink of life again. So it's like, how do we feed ourselves, nourish ourselves, you know, quench our thirst
1: for life? Yes, yes. And to recognize that, you know, we are being fed living in struggle. We're being fed that. And in some places more than others. For example, in America, there are so few holidays. We have so few (laughs) holidays in America. I don't think we could live with it at all. (laughs) We have lots of holidays and holy days, you know, and we need that. We need that. We need to break away from it. And even though we had such a huge inner turmoil at the time of the lockdown, at the same time, it gave a lot of people an opportunity to question how much of a struggle they survive in Mm -hmm. with their work. You know, leaving so early in the morning, getting back late, worrying about things, being called perhaps in the night or at weekends. You know, it's the work is meant to sustain us so that we can do what we want to do. For some people, their work is what they want to do, and that's absolutely fantastic. That's wonderful. But for others, they need to do that work to have the finance or and the space to do what they really want to do in life. You know, I find it very sad sometimes that somebody will go into something they really love. And just for example, say going into sound healing. They absolutely love sound healing. They go and they train in sound healing and it nourishes them. It feeds them. They wake up in the morning and they get up and they make their sounds and they feel connected. But then often they will try and make money out of it. And that doesn't happen for them. And they can get very disillusioned. They can go into despair and they might even give up on it because of it. But actually, when they went to do that sound healing and to to train in it, they didn't do it with the idea of, teaching it. They went because it fed them. It fed their soul. And so for some people, you can make money out of the thing you love to do. But for mm-hmm. others, it has to be something that you do at other times. And you make sure you have that time to do it. You know, there used to be a tradition in Ireland that, you know, and I live down in the South, as as you know, um, but you used to work to live. And gradually, as we became more and more part of Europe, the EU, It started changing Mm -hmm. into how I see it in America, which is you live to work. But think about working to live, giving yourself that time, giving yourself that space to do the things you need to do. If you feel stressed, what better is there than to go out into nature, to walk in nature, to breathe it, to breathe how it smells after the rain to feel the winds if perhaps they've picked up and they're blowing your hair all over the place, and you think, oh, God, I wish I'd brought a hat with me. (laughs) But you still feel it, you know. You can feel it going through your clothes, feeling the sun, looking at the springtime when everything begins to bud, when the birds are singing the earth away. You know, nature feeds you, and it takes you into a different space. It takes you into a different reality, which for me is the reality. Yeah. That is what feeds us. That's what supports us. And when you wake up, I mean, my first thing in the morning when I get up, the first thing I do is I open the curtains and put up the blind. I sleep with a, a night blind so that there's no light coming in and my, my curtains as well. <laughs> so I have double because I love to sleep in the Really own that darkness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Me too. It, even though I'm brown. <laughs> You know, I, I, I feel the, yeah, the sensitivity of light wakes me up very early. So I open it. I never know what I'm going to see. Am I going to see my mountains there? Are they going to be so clear? I feel like I can put my hand out and touch them. Or today, it's like this morning, you wouldn't know there were mountains, the mountains there because of the mist. And now that's gently rising. And I can see the dampness on the leaves of the trees, you know, dropping down. And every day, that is my first gift to myself. I stand there, I breathe, and I breathe into that space. I breathe into and with the earth. And that is my first gift of the day. And even if I wake up late and I'm supposed to be somewhere, I'll never not do that. Mm. I'll never not give myself those few minutes because that's my food. Mm. It's my food that feeds me. And if things are, if I have to be somewhere during the day and things are happening, I can go back at any moment, any second, and remember how I felt when I opened the curtains and lifted the blind. I can remember how I, I'm in awe. I'm like, ah, that awe feeling of looking out there and how the depth of that goes deep within me. And that is there to feed me all through the day. All through the day. And when it's a day like today, which is damp and cool, you feel like you want to just curl up in front of the fire, you know. And can I do that at some point? I will. I will this evening. I'll put my fire on and I'll enjoy that because that's what it's telling me to do. Mm -hmm. It's telling me to rest within myself today, you know. And so that starts my awareness of living with instead of living upon the earth.
0: Hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah. We're all part of this living being, this energy that we call the mother, this living earth. We are all part of her. Mm -hmm. And we have lost that alignment in the developed world. And it's coming back, and it is coming back, and I truly believe that, and I truly can see it. People that would never have talked about the earth before are talking about it. I saw a thing this morning. I was reading on my uh, phone. You know, I, the headlines come up of, from the newspapers, the Irish newspapers. And one was about asking young people if they would give up meat or and travelling if it was to save the world. And everyone except for one said that they would give up meat. Everyone. And I thought, gosh, that wouldn't have happened twenty years ago. That wouldn't have happened. Do you know? People are becoming more aware all the time. They're becoming more aware. And that needs to be nurtured. That needs to be fed. It needs to be talked about. We need to become aware again of how we care for our great mother. Yeah, in living relationship. Yes, absolutely. The living relationship with her, you know, and, and mm-hmm. feeling the presence of that energy. The beat of her heart is there. Just as we, you know, when we carry a child, the biggest thing the child hears is our heartbeat. It's so loud to the embryo and then the fetus. It is so loud. It's one of the things they miss when they are born. And if you put a newborn up by your heart, they can hear that heartbeat again. It's so instinctive because they grew with it. Well, we have grown with our mother's heartbeat. We have grown with her beats all of our living life. And so instinctive, we don't think about it anymore, but we can lie on the earth and we can open ourselves to hear her heartbeat. And you know, a fetus's heartbeat is much faster than a mother's heartbeat. And so our heartbeat is much faster than our earth mother. And you can go to many of the indigenous people around the world and they will play the mother's heartbeat because they can hear it so much clearer. She's there, she's alive and she is holding us. Supporting us, just as we should be holding and supporting her. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more awesome than perhaps a newborn in your arms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How she must feel about us.
0: Mm, Yeah. Wow, Mm. how she must feel about us. I feel that she does yearn for us to connect with her again, you know, like to feel our bare feet on the grass and to feel our backs laying against her and to feel us laying in the ocean with her and just spending more time with her.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when you dance, a group of you dance on the earth and your feet are beating on the ground in the spring, summertime, you'll find earthworms will often come up. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, because they can feel that. Wow. They can feel that. They respond to it. Yeah, it's lovely. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm, I love that. So can we finish up with the tree? Because we are talking about eating and drinking of life and the feast of nature into how it feeds us in this middle world and in our daily life. But then there's the branches of the trees and that's the spirit world.
1: Yes, yes. so in the middle world, we are held, as I was shown it, we are held by the wheel. Uh, You can call it the wheel of the year or the eightfold wheel. And this wheel determines the movement as we move around the year. And for us, it starts, when I say us, I mean in Ireland, and probably for a lot of Celtic people, it starts at the time of Samhain. Mm-hmm. And would be, it would have been the midpoint between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. For many, it would also have been the time of the dark moon, the new moon, nearest to that time. It's now at a fixed date, which is the date of Halloween. But up until, say, the 8th century, it wasn't fixed. And that is the most important of all the eight points on the wheel. And that is the point that is connected to the ancestors. Samhain is connected to the ancestors. And so the whole story of Halloween and how Halloween evolved comes from Ireland. It comes from the Irish people going to America and Canada and not finding turnips that They would have been able to have here in Ireland and making turnip heads to frighten away the ancestors so the ancestors wouldn't know they were there because Christianity determined that that was something that was obviously against God. And so they were told not to allow the ancestors to come in. And so they started doing the pumpkins instead. So Samhain would be the most major, the the main point on the eightfold wheel. And we move around to all of the... Points of the wheel. So then we would have in bulk, which would be the, the end of January, beginning of February. We would have Beeltana, the end of April, beginning of May, and we would have Lunasa, the end of July, beginning of August. And each of these have a very specific meaning. So as Sauron is connected to the ancestors and the gate between the realms, in bulk is connected to birth and beginnings. Bieltener is connected to flowers, flowering, the passion, the awakening of our passion. And Lunasa is to do it the harvest. And so, on. of course, on a woman's uh, wheel, it would be the time of the mother. And then we have the four lesser points, which would be the equinoxes and the solstices. And for me, as I was working with this, I started receiving guidance from different deities that would come forward and show me where their place was on the wheel and the gifts that they brought to us. And I began to learn also that they were archetypes to the different aspects that lay within us. And so the eight deities that I have on the different points of the wheel, each one came to me showing me her gifts and what we can learn from that time of the year, that turning of the wheel. And each of those points are also parts of who we are within ourselves. We carry that within ourselves. And you can also connect it to the whole movement of the main rites of passage, as in birth, first blood, marriage, things of that nature. So the middle world is held by the wheel because it shows us the turning of the wheel, it shows us the movement in nature and how we walk that wheel in our lives. And then everything within that, of course, which is to do with the middle world, how we create in this reality. It's connected also to shamanic healing. It's connected to clearing energies, um, things of that nature, shape-shifting, different things that are all part of this reality. And then the upper world is the top of the tree, it's the branches of the tree, how we move up into spirit, recognizing that we too are spirit. We call ourselves human beings, <laughs> beings in human form. We actually I actually think of ourselves as animal human beings because, unfortunately, a lot of people can often show their animal self before they show their human self. <sighs> and so we do have an animal nature, and our animal nature is not something we should try and get rid of, cut out. <laughs> Is actually our survival. We need to embrace our animal nature, but we do not allow it to determine our choices, but we allow it to give us information that we can actually bring forth into the intellect to understand. So if instinctively you suddenly get a gut feeling when you're somewhere and you think, oh, I want to get out of here, that's your animal nature telling you something's wrong. But it doesn't tell you what is wrong or why it is wrong. And so you need to know yourself as to what that is. You need to be able to bring that into the intellect from the instinctive and ask, what is it I'm feeling, number one? And number two, always, has it anything to do with me? Has it anything to do with me? Because quite often what you're picking up has nothing to do with you. But it doesn't mean you haven't felt it. So that then gives you the information to know how to deal with that. So, we bring that animal nature into our way of humanness, so to speak. We learn how to move from reaction to response. We learn how to move from engagement and investment into choice and into bearing witness. So that's all middle world. And then the upper world, the branches, the place of spirit, our connection with our spirit selves, our connection with our spirit guides. The spirit have no idea that you are going to have to crossroad drive cars, pay a mortgage, put food on the table for the kids. They are pure light. They are the place of light. So we can draw from that. We can ask for assistance. But you will never normally find spirit telling you what you have to do. That's not their role. They're there to stand beside us, to hold our hand. They're there to have our back. They're there to assist us in bringing light into situations. We are here to live in the essence of all that we are animal, human, being. We are here to create. We are here to be in the space of the I am. I am that I am. Fully cognitant, fully conscious within every living second of every living moment. And so that means that spirit don't tell us what to do. They can assist us, but we have to make the decisions because this is our life. This is our creativity. These are our choices, and they have to be our choices. So, for example, when I'm working with a person in shamanic healing, and I do call it shamanic healing because that's what it is, I will say to the person, I am here to assist you and we can work on this together, but I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it with you because I'm here to assist that person to become all that they are meant to be. And if I do it for them, then I'm taking away that opportunity and that's unhealthy for both them and for me.
0: I really love this. This is so rich, and there's so many different layers of it that kind of weave in with each other. And I love how you brought the Celtic wheel in into the middle world. And what is the significance of the ritual and the ceremony in this way?
1: Yes, I would see all of that in the middle world. And It's moving things into the sacred, moving whatever it is you're looking to work with or through, you're bringing it into the sacred. And sometimes it is for a closure. Sometimes it is for a recognition. To me, the difference between a ceremony and a ritual is often that a ritual can be done alone, whereas a ceremony is often done within a community base. So it could be something that you have been working with and working through, And then you offer it to the earth. So you might do a ritual with the earth. You might bury what it is you've been carrying. You might burn it. You might write it down and burn it. You might use the ashes or you might breathe it into the earth. And then you put in some seeds and you gift it some water, whether it's your spit or if you're still bleeding, you might give her your blood. And then you feed those seeds. You help them to grow So something of beauty will come from something of pain or something of difficulty. So very much ceremony and ritual for me is moving things into the sacred. Do you have a daily practice
0: that grounds you and anchors you into this path and into nature, your ancestors, a spirit that weaves these worlds
1: together? Yes, I see it as my life rather than um, something that I do. It's more something that I am, to be honest. And um, so when I wake up in the morning, I always take a moment to breathe consciously down into my womb and to relax myself into me and to feel me. I might feel sluggish. I'm not a morning person as a rule, (laughs) so I might feel sluggish. But I just, I'm gentle with myself. I say, it's okay. I know that I'll wake up after I've had my lemon waters. I normally have two mugs of hot lemon water in the morning, which I love. It wakes me up. It's like a, mm. a spark, you know. That <laughs> I, I always start with that. And then, as I said, I open the curtains and the blind and I drink in the day. And I carry that consciousness with me through the day. So I'm conscious when I'm cutting vegetables, for example. I'm putting light into the food. I'm conscious when I go out and I walk upon the land. My prayer is that may every step I take be a prayer upon her body. I'm conscious when I am going past, whether it's a puddle or a stream, a lake, a river, the ocean, whether it's the rain pouring down upon me and dripping off me, I'm conscious of putting blessings into the water and that that just moves on out to all those who can receive that who can receive those blessings. So I'm aware of it consciously, continuously, really, in my life around me. Um, With the students, when they do the apprentice work, one of the things I teach them is what we call the power body, which is building a body around them where they don't take anything in, but they're able to observe it Mm. and they're able to choose how they wish to engage in it because there's so much energy out there in today's world. And it's quite important to be aware of what often you can take on without realizing it has nothing to do with you. So for me, it's a part of my life. I say thank you a lot. I say thank you to nature. I say thank you to people a lot. Somebody holds a door open. Um, I'll thank them. Somebody moves out of the way as I'm moving through with my basket, say, in the supermarket. I turn and I smile at them and I say thank you. Mm a smile opens a person's thymus. It's healthy. You're giving them healing purely by smiling at them. So, you know, I'm conscious of these things through the day. And for me, it's it's second nature. So I don't think of it so much as a spiritual practice as a way of being. I'm a kind person. And I love to see it in my children and grandchildren. But I don't see kindness as a weakness. And a few months ago I had to say somebody say to somebody do not mistake my kindness for weakness because I'm also tough and I am both I am all of that I am strong and I am powerful and I'm passionate and I'm sensitive and I am gentle and I am kind and I'm grace filled I am all of that and and as women we all are but you can choose how you wish to allow that to flow through you. And the more you open to allowing that kindness to flow through you to others, the more you are gifting them the opportunity to not just receive it, but also to awaken that within them so that they too can reciprocate that to someone else. If you're driving along and there's a car trying to come out of a side road and you stop and wave to them to come out and you smile at them, they will feel that and hopefully they'll have gratitude and some other time in some other place, they will do it for somebody else. And so it's a way of being. It's so simple yet so powerful. Yeah. And
0: it reminds me of what you said at the beginning of the breath and changing the texture of our breath and how a different kind of breath can really put us into a whole different rhythm in our days you know and and it can slow the moments down it can root us into the present moment it can fill us with the stillness of the now and i feel like that is something that as an american woman speaking is very needed it's the medicine that is needed for this westernized intellectualized world is this medicine of nature and of dropping back into our heart. And it really is only one breath away,
1: the moment we remember it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And also being aware of breathing out, Jacqueline. Being aware of breathing out before you breathe in. Because so often people will hold their breath when something happens. And when you hold your breath, you are unconsciously putting that stress or that shock or whatever it is somewhere in your body. You're holding it. You're telling the body to hold on. But if you can learn to breathe out first, if you can get into the rhythm of breathing out first, you're instructing the body to let go. I don't need to hold this. You're instructing your subconscious to let go. I don't need to hold this. And then you breathe in. And then you breathe out again before you reply or before you respond. You're giving yourself more space in time, quite literally, to choose how you wish to reply or to respond to that given moment. So again, if I take the driving, if you're driving along and a car suddenly pulls out in front of you, instinctively people will go, ah, and hold their breath. So instead you go, ah, ah you breathe it out. You let that stress leave your body rather than hold it on and in. And then you breathe in that life force. And then you breathe out again. Ah! So you're letting the body relax. You're letting the body let go rather than lodging that stress somewhere in your body. And
0: I feel like that is sort of connects with what you were saying about the power body. And that's, is that what brings us into the power body where we're not taking anything in because that breathing out is allowing us that moment of awareness
1: to see what are we choosing to bring in? Partially. Yes, partially it is. But it's also, you know, if I give you a very quick example, for example, if you imagine yourself in an egg, the pointed part of the egg over your head, the rounded point, the rounded part of the egg beneath your feet. So you're in this egg shape. And every morning when you wake up, you visualize it, you see it, you sense it, you feel it, you can almost push your hands against it, it's about three inches outside of your body. And it can be quite opaque. But everything that comes towards you is rebounded back without your engagement. So, for example, if somebody is coming towards you with love, they will feel that love rebound, rebounding back. If they come towards you with irritation, they will receive their own irritation back. Which, by the way, is one of the most sacred gifts you can give another person: is to deal with their own stuff, <laughs> engage in their stuff, you mm-hmm. know. And you don't need to have it. You don't need – it's lovely when somebody loves me. I love it. It's lovely. I love being loved, and I love giving love, but I don't need their love because I actually do love myself, (laughs) and I can spoil myself sometimes because of that, and that's fine too. You know, from the time my youngest got to the age where they wanted to choose their own presents for me, I always bought myself a Christmas present and a birthday present from then onwards, you know, because I knew exactly what I wanted. (laughs) that's part of taking care of me. That's part of my self-love. And so feeling that energy around you when you walk into a supermarket or before you get into your car, you feel that. So anything that rebounds, anything that is directed rather towards you is rebounded back without your engagement. And if you engage in it, you have to ask yourself, why? What am I getting out of that? That allowed me to engage in that when I know that I shouldn't. For example, there's like certain people, and it's nearly always family because, of course, our greatest gifts, our greatest, <laughs> <laughs> our families. You know, these souls who have chosen to play these roles in our life that we have to deal with, and how can we hold ourselves so we don't take that on? And as soon as we yeah. learn that, it's quite amazing how often that person will change mm. because once we've it, once we get it. Once we no longer react to it, we don't need that soul to play that role any longer in our lives. There can be deep, deep change in that.
0: And a reweaving of the pattern of a family pattern that's playing out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Letting go of that pattern. Absolutely. Because that plays out and that can play out for generations, you know hmm Given the wheel of the year
0: that we're in right now, what do you feel is the significance, the lessons of the time that we are living through, the medicine of this season, this station that we are in of the wheel?
1: A closing down and a closing in, a slowing down, taking time, if we can, for ourselves, recognizing that everything around us has slowed down and closed down. It looks like death in many ways, but it's not. It's asleep. In the Northern Hemisphere, a lot of nature is falling into a deep slumber, but it doesn't mean there's nothing happening under the earth. It's shifting and changing under the earth and releasing, and it's a time for us to do that too. During this time, moving up to the time of the Kalyak, the time of the winter solstice, it's time when we can begin to relax you know so often we get into doing how much have we done this year I mean really look at it go back on your calendar and look at all that you've done you know it's quite extraordinary how much we get done in our lives nowadays against our our grandparents Mm -hmm. and when did we take time to let that move within us to let that go perhaps within us You know, the tide comes in and the tide goes out. Our breath comes in and our breath goes out. That constant motion, that constant movement that is in life, it's in nature, it's in us. How often do we take time to be quiet, to review, to have the time to sit back and just be rather than do, to look at what fits us and what doesn't, what serves us and what doesn't, what we've learned, what we've read, where we've been in the year, And how much of us, how much of that, rather, feeds us, supports us, and how much doesn't? And there's no judgment on that at all. There's no, that's wrong. It's actually, that doesn't serve me anymore, or that doesn't fit. It might fit next year, and it might never fit. But it's just letting go of what you don't need to carry any longer. And this is the time. This is the time when we need to rest and replenish. This is the time when we need to recognise how much we are choosing to carry into the new year. So that for me is very much this time of the year.
0: Beautiful. One thing that I've really loved in learning about Irish women in traditional ways is that they really valued this time of year, saw the value in it and honored it and didn't view this turning inward and slowing down and permission to rest. It wasn't bypassed. It was really squeezed for the uniqueness of that coming inward and that's been really Mm -hmm. helpful to me in Mm -hmm. allowing me to give myself permission to slow down and to be more reflective and go inward more and adjust my rhythms knowing that there's those four mothers again who very much saw the power and the wisdom of the slowing down, even when society tells me, get this and get that and do this and go that I can go wait, hold up. Remember that breath. Remember the ancestors. Remember an older way, a different way. And remember the true value of this season is really in the darkness. It's not in the flashiness of the outside world during this time. Yes. Yes,
1: absolutely. And also you have to remember that people lived according to nature. And that's that not long ago. And they lived like that for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And so at this time, you know, the last harvest would have been done. The meat and the fish would have been salted. And salt was a commodity. And salt is, of course, sacred in Ireland because salt would be connected to all of the elements. It comes from the sea. It's washed up on the sand, which is the earth it's lifted by the air, and it's mm-hmm. dried by the sun. So it carries the elements within its sort. And so that the meat and the, uh, the fish would be sorted. It might be the last slaughter before the winter months. The potatoes would be in, the turf would be dry and waiting to be put in the fire for the winter months. So the nights became long, the days became short, And so nature was telling them to settle in, settle down. At this point, people would still be traveling to each other's houses and they'd be telling stories. And the stories would always be the stories of the ancestors or the myths. They would be remember this, remember when they did that or Mm. whatever it was. You know, they would be the memories and the memories, the stories, they fed us they fed us and held us as we went through those winter months. And those stories also taught us things and carried us through. I said to one of my daughters uh, in the summer, she was here and she asked me something and I started to tell her, but I I find as I'm getting older, I'm starting to kind of make more stories of everything, you know. And she said to me, oh, mom, you're going into a story again. (laughs) And I said to her, "Ah, Siobhan, I said, who is going to hold my Mm. stories when I go? Who's going to hold my stories, you know? Mm. And she said, well, maybe you should write them down. And I thought, well, I'm never going to do that. I'm dyslexic. I'm never going to write. (laughs) Maybe I should record them because it's like, who does hold the stories now? Who holds the stories? When my aunt died a few years ago, she was the oldest relative, bless her. And in the last 18 months before she passed, and I used to visit her weekly because she wasn't far from here, she used to start telling me the same stories, and she'd say to me, no, I didn't tell you that before, did I? I didn't tell you that. And I'd say, no, May, you didn't tell me that before. And this might be the third time I've heard it in the last, you know, 15 minutes. But I realized that actually she needed to tell these stories because once she was gone, they were gone. Yes. Once she had passed over, those stories would be lost, and those stories are precious, They were precious. My mother and father grew up in a society that was so very different to mine. Yeah, And even I grew up in a society that's so very different to my children and grandchildren. I mean, my two daughters, when they were younger, wanted to have their own bedrooms. And I I laughed at them. I said, you know, I slept in my mother and father's bedroom till I was 11 years old. I slept in the same bed as my brother, you know, until I was eight. It's like, it's a different world. Mm Mm-hmm. And who is going to remember those stories? Who's going to remember? That is, Well, we will hold your stories
0: because they really are the lifeblood that keeps us going. And that sacred role of the keeper of the stories, the cantador and the Mexican cultures. And I don't know if there's a specific name for for them in the Irish lineage. Is there one? The Shaniqui.
1: Shanaki. Shanaki is. How do you spell that? Oh gosh, you're asking a dyslexic, I'm afraid. Okay. (laughs) It's okay. It's an oral oral storytelling tradition, anyways. We don't need to know how it's spelled. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it comes from God. It comes from the bardic tradition. You know, every tribe would have a bard, and the bard was the second most important person in the tribe. And the bard could be a man or a woman, but they would hold the story of the people. And um, so every tribe, and it could be like the Murphy tribe, the McNamara tribe, the O'Sullivans, and the story keeper, the bard, would be able, it said, to take the stories of those people back 33 generations. Wow. And so, of course, when that was disbanded, the Cromwellian times gradually the bards also were lost and they became the Shaniquis they became the storytellers who travelled around Ireland going from village to village and not only would they tell stories but also of course they'd carry the gossip and it would be as a sign of privilege if they stayed in your house and you would give them the warmest place beside the fire to sleep in and you'd feed them and the word would go around and that night everybody would come to the cottage and they would listen to the storyteller telling their story you know and that up until the 1950s and the bamfilles were were the ones that were training really to be either a bard or an ovate or yeah yeah the bards could be men or women and um and it's like the the keepers of the breton laws the keepers of the breton laws were nearly always women and they were the laws that the people would live by and it was to do with retribution, retribution as in if you did something wrong to someone, you would have to pay for that. So if you hurt somebody, if you had a fight with somebody and say you broke his arm or you you hurt his leg, then the Breton lawkeeper would look at that and they'd say, well, you now have to live in his family and take care of the family and the children. And you have to work on his land until he's well enough again. And you're going to have to give him two cows and a few sheep. So they played a role of maintaining balance and order. Absolutely. And they would travel, again, they would travel from village to village. And the people would wait for them to come before they brought their stories towards them about what had happened, you know.
0: So was their job more surrounding the legalities or the maintaining order and balance more than the storytelling of the
1: bards? Oh yes, but that's then that this is the bar this is the um breton lawkeepers. It's just you asking about the women brought that up for me. And you might get a banfelle who who would have been a breton lawkeeper, but I would imagine that that would have been less often rather more often.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, this was such a beautiful and enriching conversation and the day is closing and changing here now as we speak to so it makes sense to close this up as we're moving with the cycles. And I know that you do retreats and pilgrimages and you have your books. So can you tell people about how they can get involved with you and contact you?
1: Sure. Thank you. Yes. Um, I have a website, Celtic Soul Journeys, and Journeys has a YS at the end, Celtic Soul Journeys, all one word dot com. And on that, it shows the teachings, it shows the workshops, and it shows the pilgrimages. And I travel to the States teaching and sometimes also to Canada, uh, West Coast, Middle and East Coast. And I do the pilgrimages in Ireland, which I adore. We go onto the land and it's inner and outer exploration. So we work inwardly and we work outwardly. And each pilgrimage is very different according to the women that are on the pilgrimage, really brings forth what is needed for the group. And one of the things I love about it is that we meet as women and we, we leave as sisters. And some of those sisters stay connected for many years because of it. So it is lovely. We go to the sacred sites, mainly of the female deities. And sometimes we go in silence, sometimes we go in song. And we just allow whatever to emerge that is meant so with the teachings, the I Have Apprentices, I am starting a new group in January, and it is a four-year course, and you can get lots of information on that. And I also have some teacher trainers who have been through the apprenticeship and been through the teacher training, who are also beginning to start working with groups now too. I have two in America and two here, two women here as well. So that is there too. So you'll be able to find that information through the website. And even if you just want to, Send an email and say hi. I enjoyed I enjoyed your interview. Um, that would be lovely. And if you want to go on the mailing list, you'll see at the bottom of each page "mail chum," and you just join. And I do a monthly vlog, just sharing for a few minutes where we are upon the wheel and the time. And also, you'll then get the information of what's happening in the following year. Wonderful, beautiful.
0: Thank you so much, and thank you for this time together and for keeping this tradition alive and for your work in in keeping of the stories as well.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Jacqueline, for asking me. Many, many blessings to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.